it as a progression from birth to maturity. And uh, Hosanna is a great expression of our um, need for God, like a little baby reaching out to a mom or dad. Um, God, save. Lord, save us. So, welcome. Um, how many of you were not here the first week? Um, wow, a bunch of you. Okay, we, before the end of the day, I'm going to offer a couple of uh, possibilities for makeup session um, that will be a couple of hours that will kind of recap or, and condense what we went over that first day. Um, you'll also be able to access the, um, the talks in one of two ways. You can either purchase them on CDs down in the bookstore or um, sometime this week I will be publishing them online as a podcast and I'll send you a link so you can listen to them online. Um, I would have done that already, but my wife and I over the last two weeks have sold our home and bought another one. Um, none of it was planned, so um, it's kind of a crazy deal. Um, maybe I'll get to tell the, the whole story, but it's very exciting for us, but has uh, been quite a, uh, uh, quite a uh, adventure, so getting all the inspections and all that kind of stuff done. So what we're going to do today is, um, and by the way, if you weren't here last time, my name is Paul Looney. I'm a psychiatrist, have a private practice here locally, and also work part-time here at Woodlands Church. And um, I'm over counseling and recovery ministries here. And every two years, we offer this training. Um, we call it Bridging the Gap for anyone who desires to grow in their ability to be a minister of God's grace. And that's what this, this training is all about. Um, some of you will have an opportunity at the end of the training to make application to serve as a lay counselor at this church. If you're a member here, um, you can make application. We'll go through a selection process and choose just a few of you um, to serve with the team that we already have in place. But I can assure you that if you will um, dig deep into the truths that are presented by me and the other uh, folks that will be sharing with you today and the days to come, you will be blessed in whatever you do, in your, in your relationships with coworkers, with your family members, um, in your church body. You will be equipped to be a more effective minister of grace, and that's what it's all about. Um, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And coming here, I hope that um, you will experience some of that blessedness. For those of you who weren't here last week, we're using the Beatitudes to provide a framework for understanding about God's path to, uh, to personal uh, maturity. And that as we look at the Beatitudes, we are looking at them in a relational context for how they inform us in the way we position our hearts and our minds, our thoughts and our behaviors in relationship first to God as our primary attachment and then to our neighbor as those who are joint heirs of grace with us. And so we'll, re we'll recap some of that this morning, especially for those of you who weren't here, but even for those who were, to kind of get you um, once again to be thinking about this framework or model that we're using. But I, um, I'll just briefly mention a couple of things that I, I, don't, I think we skipped over pretty quickly last week. One is the whole idea of blessedness. Um, the Beatitudes are the opening phrases of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And in each of those phrases, and there's eight of them, he begins with two words, blessed are. And the word blessed is not one that we use a lot in everyday conversation, we use the word blessed, which is spelled the same way, but, but sounds differently, um, to, to talk about being blessed or gifted with something that is not, that we have no control over. For instance, uh, you might be blessed with a beautiful wife or um, blessed with healthy children. Uh, we may be blessed with a, um, with a lovely day of rain. Um, we're blessed in many ways, but a blessing is something that generally we don't deserve it. It's something conferred upon us. Blessedness is a little different. It does, not it, 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 it does not depend totally on us, but it is, as Jesus shows us, an outgrowth of our positioning our hearts and our, our lives in, in proper relationship with God and others. And he promises in each of these beatitudes that if we will do what he is encouraging, we will experience something he calls blessedness. What's another word that we might use um, for blessed? Does anybody know what another word that is sometimes used even in, in some translations of the Bible? 
instead of blessed. Happy, I saw somebody say it back there. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Um, the word happy has as its um, base hap, which has to do with, uh, with chance. And happiness really is more uh, based on chance, whereas blessedness, again, is based on proper relationship. But nevertheless, happy is uh, a little window into what it means to be blessed. Another word that we might think of would be joyful or peaceful, at rest, spiritually prosperous. All of these words really began to illuminate this condition that Jesus invites us to experience through the Beatitudes. Um, the, the very word beatitude has to, it comes from a Latin word beata, which means blessed or blessed. And so Jesus, in these opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, is, ang- is hooking in to the deepest human desire for happiness and peace. Um, very often, I'll, when someone comes to me in my practice, I'll ask them, you know, what's the most important thing to you? And it's not uncommon that they will say, I just want to be happy, or I just want to have inner peace. And when Jesus spoke these words of the Beatitudes, he was appealing to a deep desire that every human being has to experience peace, to experience calm, to experience wholeness. Um, Wholeness is another word that really is reflected in this idea of blessedness. The the Greek word is makarios. We didn't talk about this last time, did we? Okay. The Greek word makarios has as its root... M-A-K, which, is the, which means to enlarge or lengthen or expand, as opposed to micro, which means small or little. Macro or mac means to enlarge. And so while um, Jesus is inviting us to walk this path of the Beatitudes, he's inviting us to be enlarged in our capacity to receive grace from God, to enlarge our heart's ability to embrace life as God would have us and to embrace one another as uh, parts, as members of his body. So this is the, the, the Greek word. The Hebrew word that is most closely akin to blessedness is the word shalom. And that's a word that we're much more familiar with. How do we usually translate the word shalom? Peace. Um, in, if, you go to, if you go to Jerusalem, they will use it as a greeting, shalom. Um, it's, it's a blessing of peace. It's a blessing of wholeness and well-being. And when we work with people in counseling, in the, in the counseling setting, what we're inviting them to is a deeper experience of peace, a deeper experience of wholeness, of well-being, of being at rest and calm, to enter into a place where they can set, set aside their anxiety, their fear, their depression, and enter into a, to an atmosphere that God wants for every believer to walk in day by day. And ultimately, we do that by inviting them to experience grace. Now, last week, we, we started out by talking a little bit about the title of our, our workshop, which is called Bridging the Gap. I wonder if there's another black marker that works better. Bridging. Move this. Oh, yeah, thanks. Put it over here. Bridging the gap refers to a gap that we all experience because we live in a fallen world. And what we, what we said last uh, two weeks ago when we met was that there is a big gap between what ought to be or the ideal, and there is a handout in your, in your folder if you want to refer back to that, and what is or the reality of our experience here on the earth. And that every day we live in a gap between what we feel ought to be true and what really is true. Every day we come up against our own inadequacies or the inadequacies of those that we love. We come up against our own uh, frustrations, the sense of futility that we have. And what we know is that Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation was subjected to futility in hope that the sons of God would be revealed. 
In other words, this gap, as painful as it is for us, is really what invites us to experience grace. Um, We talked last week about how people don't come to you unless they feel a need, unless they feel a gap, unless there's some gap between what they wish they were experiencing and what they're really experiencing. And that you will find that that gap in their experience brings them to you in order that they can connect with you in a way that that brings them a greater experience of love or peace or grace or truth. And so the gap is where God woos us. Um, If we didn't experience futility in in this earthly realm, if we didn't experience frustration, if things were peachy keen all the time, we would never feel our desperate need for God. We would live in an illusion that we are self, self-sufficient. We would live with a sense that everything's okay when the reality is the moment that we are separated from God and His grace, which infuses every molecule of the planet, we will be dead. The moment that God would withdraw His grace from this system, we would be obliterated. There is nothing that sustains us apart from God. And it's only, but it's only in those moments that we feel our lack when we don't have enough love or energy or um, good feelings or relationships that we realize we really need God. We are desperate for Him. And so the frustration that God's in, infused into this system is a gift. It's a gift to bring us to, to line up with certain realities or truths that will ultimately lead us to God. Um, we, talked brief, we talked about how it's in this gap that we experience shame. And shame, um, in contrast to guilt, is an experience of, of not that we have done wrong, but that we are wrong. Not that we have done badly, but that we are bad, that we are inadequate, that we're inept, that we are uh, not all that we should be. And the, the, the truth is that as we approach God the gap gets bigger. If you remember in the Old Testament when Isaiah um, saw the Lord high and lifted up, his response was, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in people of unclean lips. When Job encountered God, what did he say? I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so ironically, the closer we get to God and the more we invite people to come into a relationship with God, the bigger the gap gets. So that the, the, the very uh, sort of frustrating but very cool irony is that the more you progress in your relationship with God, the more you realize your need for grace. Isn't that awesome? And we all feel it when we first come, into sal- come to salvation. We all realize how inadequate we are and the, this gaping wound in our souls that reflects the difference between where we ought to be and where we are, what should have been true of us and what really is our past. But it's tempting for us sometimes, because shame is so painful, to try to escape that feeling of inadequacy. But when we escape our feeling of inadequacy, we escape our need for for grace. And we talked about how um, all of our attempts to avoid shame um, come to nothing. The first thing that we saw Adam and Eve did was to cover up. And what you're going to find is that a lot of people who come to you in, um, in counseling are coming because their cover-up maneuvers have failed them. They have uh, covered up their sense of shame by being, say, a successful businessman. And you'll come to some, you'll, someone will come to see you because they've lost their job. Um, someone has covered up their sense of inadequacy by being the, ult- the ultimate mom, and they come to you because their child has just told them that they're gay or their child is on drugs. And their whole sense of inadequacy is suddenly brought to the surface again because what they've done to try to make themselves feel good about themselves has come to a crashing uh, halt. Um, Some people cover up by looking good, by um, wanting to be beautiful, and they come to you because they're in a crisis of age where they're realizing they're starting to sag or wrinkle or, you know, they can't measure up anymore, and their feelings of inadequacy are coming to light again. Or they've covered up by being an athlete and they've, they've had an injury that keeps them from, uh, from playing sports. All kinds of cover-ups that we do to avoid our shame 
if God has his way, will at some point come to an end and force us back to our need for grace. Some people, some people will come to you because rather than covering up, they've tried to withdraw. They haven't felt competent to engage in some kind of a elaborate uh, scheme to uh, create a facade, so they've just withdrawn from a relationship. Sometimes they're withdrawn in depression or anxiety. Sometimes they've grabbed onto something that is real, something that is at hand to, to make them uh, feel numb toward their shame. And it could be alcohol, and they're coming to you because they finally come out of denial about their alcohol problem. It could be that they've withdrawn into, um, into pornography or into um, shopping addiction or um, withdrawn into some other kind of behavior that may not even be bad in itself, but is limiting their ability to engage life in a healthy way. Maybe it's, it's online gaming. Um, could be all kinds of things that people hide behind to, have, to avoid having to deal with the reality of their inadequacy. The third maneuver we, we said that uh, Adam and Eve in, employed when they were made aware of their shame was what Adam did when he was approached by God and he blamed Eve and blamed God. And some people will come to you because the blame game is no longer working. They may have, may, may have blamed their spouse for years for their unhappiness, and now they've gone through a divorce, and lo and behold, they're still unhappy. Um, maybe they've lived with so much blame and anger that they've progressively become a more embittered person and are in trouble at work because they blew up on the boss, um, that they're so used to uh, shifting blame that they've uh, lost their job because of uh, performance issues or their spouse has left them because they're such an angry person or they're alienated from their child because they've been so controlling and, and hostile. Um, but the, the blame game, if God has his way, will fall to nothing in order that we would come back to our own need for grace. The final maneuver that we talked about that was employed by um, Eve um, was to excuse or justify. And unfortunately, as I, I briefly said last time, this defense mechanism is the most pernicious and deadly of these defense mechanisms, partly because it's the least likely to fail us. All of these other maneuvers eventually um, are likely to come to a bad end. But excuse and justification or rationalization, are, is such, it's such a powerful defense that people can live their whole life convincing themselves that they don't really have to measure up to the standard because, well, I wasn't raised that way. Well, that's not my personality. Or they'll justify themselves. Well, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't see that, that that person was hurting. Well, I didn't know that, that I, you know, I, what could I do? I only had so much money and this, the need was so big. The excuse or justification defense was what Eve was employing when she said, I was deceived. The serpent deceived me. I couldn't help it. That's why I ate. And unfortunately, while justification is a very powerful defense, it doesn't let us off the hook. And Jesus, when he approached the Pharisees, who were masters of excuse, who, who focused on the things that, that they could control in measuring up to the ideal, tithing, praying a certain amount of times every day, um, external things that they could control, that they excused themselves from the weightier matters, which Jesus said are mercy and righteousness. And so um, some people will come to you because they're finally realizing that self-righteousness does not cover our shame, that our own righteousness, as the Bible says, is like filthy rags, that what we do can never cover our shame, and that whatever we do can only move us from this line down here a fraction of, a, a fraction of an inch toward, toward God, that the, the righteousness of God is as far above us as the heavens are above the earth. And we said that in the garden, God provided um, a covering for Adam and Eve. He showed them grace 
by, through sacrifice. And through, through the, the sacrifice of animals in the garden, God brought covering for them and foreshadowed the cross, which would bring covering for us. And that in that sacrifice, Adam and Eve began to experience grace. And um, that as grace flows into our lives, shame is, is, is dispelled. Now, the only thing worse than, being, than feeling shame is being shameless. And over and over again in Scripture, we, we are told that it is, it's a really bad thing to have no shame. Um, and unfortunately, we live in a culture that cultivates this attitude of no shame. And um, unfortunately, with reality TV and everything that's going on, there are plenty of people who have convinced themselves that they have no need to feel shame at all. And as it turns out, that is the, the position of excuse or justification that exempts us from grace. Remember that any time we excuse our behavior or rationalize away our responsibility, we are moving ourselves out of the realm of grace. Any form of self-righteousness, and, and, and you may not think of it this way. We, we often think of self-righteousness as just going, oh, I'm such a great person. I'm so good because I tithe and I pray. And that is one form of self-righteousness, but it's also self-righteousness if we, depend on, if we tell ourselves any story that lets us off the hook, any excuse, any justification, any rationalization that lets us off the hook and exempts us from needing God's grace. So what, what's the remedy for this? I wanna, we we kind of went through it fast last time, so I hope you'll bear with me as I kind of recap this. But we said that, that if God has his way, he will bring us all like he did the, part, the prodigal son to a moment when we can no longer live in denial. We can no longer cover up, withdraw, blame, or excuse our behavior and we have to come to a, day, a moment of reckoning when we get it that we are helpless and hopeless without God. Um, as the 12 steps say, we admitted we are powerless. And in that moment of truth for, for the prodigal son, he, he makes a decision. He activates himself to go in a different direction. And, and when we have people come to us in counseling, we want them to have that moment of truth, that aha moment, which some of them will already have had when, before they get to you. Some of them will have it in the room with you. Others will have it in between sessions. But you want them all to have that moment of awakening where they realize that God is fully prepared to deal with our shame through relationship with Him, through His grace. And so what we said last, last time was that the prodigal son came to his senses and he said to himself, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Here I am, hungry to eat what I'm feeding these filthy pigs. In my father's house, there is plenty to eat. Even the servants have enough. So he realizes, okay, there is a big gap between what I'm experiencing and what God wants for me. There is a gaping wound here. And you know what? I can do something about it. Now, he didn't know the outcome of his actions. And a lot of times when you invite people to take action in their lives, you will not be able to guarantee them that their action will produce the desired result. But the son knew one thing. He knew that taking action was what he could do. And he would put himself at the mercy of his father by taking that action. And what we're inviting people to do is put themselves at the mercy of God. Is that a good thing to do? Yes. Does it always work out the way we plan? No. Sometimes putting ourselves at the mercy of God opens us to a deeper experience of our own depravity or pain or suffering like it did for Job. But at the end of the day, if you invite people to put themselves at the mercy of God, can you assure them that all will be well? Yeah, absolutely. The Apostle Paul says it this way, we know that God is working in everything for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
And if you have a deep love for God that you can share with the people who come for you, come to you for, to you for help, then they will experience grace and mercy in their time of need. There may be a path that they have to go down to get there, but they will find the mercy of God when you invite them to. So he says to himself, what am I doing here? This is nuts. You know, nobody's given me anything. There's some, there's got to be something better if I throw myself at the mercy of my father. So this is what he says. He said, I will arise. He says, I'm going to get up. And all of us, we're going to look a little bit more about how we stumble on our path to, retru- to maturity. All of us fall down. We, every person in this room, on your path from birth to maturity, both in the physical realm and the spiritual realm, all of you have fallen down. I don't have to do a poll or have a show of hands. Now, if, you don't, if I did and you didn't raise your hand, I'm, you're just still in denial, you know? <laughs> but we've all fallen down. Like the prodigal son, what, the first thing we can do is say, I'm going to get up. The Bible says the righteous man falls seven times and arises again. One of the best things you can do is help people to get up faster. You're not going to keep them from ever falling down. But if you can help them get up faster, you've done them a huge service. So he said, I'm going to rise. I'm going to get up. Instead of covering up, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to leave my filthy rags and get up in my nakedness. I'm going to be exposed. You know, it doesn't matter anymore. I've lost all my pride. It is what it is. I'm going to arise. I'm going to get up. And he says, I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to show up. I'm going to engage the, re- the realities of my life, engage relationships in my life in a way that opens the possibility for a new beginning or grace. I'm going to get up. I'm going to rise, go to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. I'm going to fess up, and I'm going to say, um, make me, I'm no longer worthy to be called a son, make me a servant. I'm going to re-up or sign up, however you want to think of that, to be a servant. So much of the problems that people have is because they put themselves at the center of their world. It was the prodigal son's problem. He put himself at the center of his world, and everything at his disposal was put to his own service. Give me what is mine, was what he said to his father. He felt entitled because he was at the center of his universe. But what you're inviting people to do is to realize that if they get up, show up, fess up, and re-up, that God is fully prepared to enter into that central place and make us a servant, make us useful, make us satisfied to, be, to take our place at the table, take our place in his kingdom, that, that providing food for others is one of the most satisfying things. It's not like slopping pigs. It's way better. And um, for all of you who are here this morning, part of what it took for you to get here was to get up, to show up, to fess up and sign up, to make yourself available as a servant. And that's what you're going to be calling everyone else to do. Okay, so um, I left my watch at home. Okay, um, man, time flies. Now, let me, let me uh, go back quickly to the model, and then I'm going to open it up for some questions just to make sure that you guys are clear about this model. Because we, before we do anything else, I am so concerned that you understand um, what's, what's being um, laid out here in terms of the, the model for uh, relationship. What was the first? Do you remember, um, last, those of you who were here last time, we used a four-stage model of counseling and we used four words that started with C. Does anybody remember what the first one was? Connection. What we said was your first goal in um, your first goal in being with a person in a in a helpful way is to connect with them. And what we said was that the connection um, was based on your ability to create an atmosphere where they feel cared for, where they feel um, your uh, your unconditional positive regard for them, where they feel your warmth and your understanding, where they feel empathy. And what we said was empathy is your ability to communicate a sense of understanding about where they are emotionally, spiritually, um, and physically. So connection 
is your first goal. Whoops. After connection, what do we say? Confession. Like we showed in the, the thing with the, to fess up, to, to face the realities of, um, of our lives, the, the pain that we've endured, the, uh, the realities of our uh, experience with others, the realities of our own failures to be who we want to be. Um, through, then we said the next thing was course correction, where once we um, have been able to, to confess, we can correct the course and make some new decisions, um, develop a new way of thinking about things, and then finally to internalize those things in conviction and feel empowered to be able to, um, uh, to move forward. So um, there's a handout, just to kind of reinforce this, there's a handout that says um, the client counselor need at each stage. I don't think we got to that one last time. Um, it has those four words, but it also has some verses of Scripture, and I just want to kind of fill that out a little bit more. I kind of came upon this model um, of healing when I was getting ready to leave my residency training in Galveston back in 1988-89 and moved to the Woodlands. And I was asked by a hospital that was in, in existence at that time called Laurelwood. Um, some of you may remember it. It was up in Shenandoah. And they asked me to come and put together a Christian program for, uh, for those who were struggling with depression, anxiety, and other psychiatric uh, problems that wanted to, to be treated in the context of faith. And so as I began to think about putting together a program that would help people heal, I began to ask myself the question, what do people need in order to get better? And I thought about it first in terms just as a medical doctor, and I practiced med uh, medicine for a few years before I went back to specialize in psychiatry. I was thinking, what do people need if they're going to get healing? And the first thing that came to my mind was, um, to get healing, there must be a recognition of need. People have to be able to realize that they're in pain, they're hurting, there's something wrong if they're going to make an appointment to see a doctor. Now, occasionally people make a well, a well doctor visit, but most of the time they call for help because they feel something is wrong. And so I thought, okay, the first thing that for people to get help with their depression or anxiety or alcoholism or whatever is a recognition of need. The second thing I thought was that they have to be willing to address the pain in a direct fashion. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, when I worked in the emergency room, it was not uncommon when someone could come with abdominal pain. There, I'm hurting, doc. And what I realized was that the first thing I had to do was press on the pain. Even though they were saying they were hurting, the first thing I had to do was make them hurt more. Kind of sad, huh? Or if it, when I was working as a campus doctor, if somebody had turned their ankle, I actually had to manipulate the ankle and press on it. And does that hurt? Does that hurt? Ow! You know, and make it hurt worse in order to find out the root of the problem. And if the person was not willing to let me, you know, press on their belly or turn their ankle or whatever, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And so people who are wanting healing have to be willing to hurt more before they hurt less. And guess what? You have to be willing to make them hurt more before they can hurt less. Some of you are not going to like that, but I'm telling you, if you don't, you will be colluding with them to avoid that pain, which could be lethal. Um, when it comes to the abdominal pain, if it's appendicitis and you don't push around enough to figure that out, and you just give them something for the pain, they could die. If their, their appendix ruptured and they, they haven't been cared for properly, they could die. Now, they'll feel better if you give them some Vicodin or whatever, and you can make people feel better if you just mask over their pain and tell them, oh, it's okay, you know, it's not your fault. You don't have to feel bad about how you've lived your life because you were so abused. You can do that, and people will feel better. But you don't go to the source of their pain. You don't let them get healing if you don't press into that. Um, the third thing I realize is that people need to be willing to take doctor's orders. They need to be willing to do what, 
take necessary steps in order to get healed. If it's, the, if it's a sprained ankle, um, the person may have to wear a splint or use ice or alternate ice and heat or wear a wrap, all kinds of things that in order for that ankle to heal in a healthy way and be, be fully functional at the end of it, they have to be willing to, uh, to do what's necessary. And I encourage people who come to me, you know, look, I want, it, I want you to, to ask yourself, what lengths are you willing to go to to get healing? Because if, they, if, if all they want is just relief of pain, then that's all you're going to be able to give them. And even Jesus had to give people what they were there for. Sometimes they were just there for a free meal. Sometimes they were there for physical healing. But at the end of the day, what Jesus really wanted to give them was a deep and intense relationship with the, with the Father. He wanted to invite them into relationship with Him. And that's what we all want for people, but we've got to get them to declare their willingness. And if, if you give them direction and they refuse to take it, then you've got, you, can't, you can't allow yourself to care more about their healing than they do. You've got to say, you know, God bless you. It's obvious that you've got plenty in your, on your plate. You're not really ready to do this work right now. It's okay. I'll still be here next year or next month or next week when you realize that you really do need to take some different actions to, to have a, a better life. The final thing, though, that I, want, that I realized that I wanted as a uh, physician for the people that came to me was that they would take responsibility not only for getting better and dealing with the pain that they were experiencing, the disability, the hurt, the illness. I wanted to know that they were going to take um, concerted effort to live a healthy life, to adopt a healthy lifestyle, to do things like take vitamins and eat healthy and go to bed at a, a decent time. And that, that, that my greatest satisfaction was when people had a deep desire to do the things that would bless them and make me unnecessary, um, that they wouldn't have to come see me as a doctor. Well, as I was thinking about these things, that was when God drew my attention to the Beatitudes, and I saw in them the embodiment of these, uh, these steps, if you will, of healing. And if you, want to, if you want to refer to the sheet on the Beatitudes, I'll just, again, briefly recap that. The first Beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The first thing that, that must happen for a good connection is the person has to admit need. Poverty of spirit is all about need, we said. Um, the person needs to be willing to um, accept assistance, to make that cry for help, to acknowledge their brokenness. Um, to, once they've done that, then they can be brought into that second stage where they, they deal with the pain, where they confront the pain. They, um, they confess their um, sin, cleanse their emotions, experience that catharsis that comes when you really open up the wound, when you really open up your soul. And you, it's, it's so great when someone is able to get it all out. They feel such relief from that. Then once they um, confront the pain, then they can receive direction. The course correction can occur. They can receive direction. They can repent of judgments that they've made about themselves and others um, that change their wrong thought patterns, their wrong beliefs and behaviors, and renew their mind through this process of course correction. And then finally, they can um, envision possibilities. They can engage the struggle. Um, they, can in, they can enter the uncertainty of, of the, the future to embark on the journey and enjoy the ride. So engaging the struggle is really the, the thing that that to have that enough conviction of what God wants for us that we engage the struggle. Um, the uh, beatitude that goes along with the second one is blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The third one is blessed are the meek, and we talked about how meekness um, is uh, being teachable. And the fourth stage is to, um, is, corresponds with blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This afternoon, you're going to be blessed by hearing Dr. Greg Ryan, and he's going to recap this, this 
paradigm, this, um, this four-stage four model of growth in talking about parenting. And you're gonna, I think you're going to be really excited to see how this, this model applies not only to physical healing, to emotional healing, to the counseling process, but also impl- uh, applies to parenting. Um, next session, we're going to also look at how it applies in the marriage relationship and how uh, every marriage is another invitation to grow up, to uh, incorporate these attitudes of, of heart that Jesus invites us to in the Beatitudes. Okay, what time is it now? Um, it's getting close to 10. Wow, fast. Okay, um, we have a couple of roving mics. Um, if there's anything in this that seems unclear, if anybody has a comment that you think would, um, would clarify things or a question that you want to ask right now, um, there's somebody in the, uh, Debbie back in the back has a mic and Nick has one up here. Anybody have a comment or a question? The first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, The only way that we will enter into a relationship with God is when we come to terms with powerlessness. And the only way that people will come to me as a psychiatrist or to you as a counselor is if they experience some poverty of spirit, some need, some um, desire for something more in their lives. Anybody else? Is this, are you, does this make sense to you? Okay. I, I find it just so thrilling that Jesus um, packs so much into these few simple phrases. And I, I think as, as we go along and we, we apply it in different areas, um, you're going to be even more excited. Um, we're going to, uh, after we have a break, we're going to hear from Ruth. Oh, we got a question? Oh, good. Yes, sir. Will this work in group counseling this type? Absolutely. Um, it's kind of cool. Some of you, how many of you have worked with groups before? There's a, um, there's a little uh, saying that groups go through stages of their development as a group. The first one is forming. Forming is all about connection, having that sense of bonding. The second is storming. Because that's when the group has enough a good connection that they can actually be real about what they're feeling and kind of challenge each other when, when somebody's you know, going way off track or when they get, you know, crosswise with each other. But there has to be a good enough bond for storming to occur, that grieving, that confession, being real, confronting the problems in the group. Um, forming, storming. The next one is norming. Um, group needs to be able to establish some boundaries. You know, how long do you talk before somebody's going to interrupt you and say, come on, you know? Um, what are the boundaries of, you know, when does the group start? When does it end? What's fair game for the group? What are our ground rules in terms of the language that we use or, um, you know, interruptions, whatever? Um, creating norms, creating structures so that the group knows what's, what the expectations are and that there's accountability um, between members of the group. And the final, the final stage is, I think, transforming. Um, with that, and that's when a group has gone through forming, storming, norming, they can do great things. And this applies to, um, like, teams that work together. It applies to therapy groups. It applies to Boy Scout troops. Um, any kind of group that, that has the ability to go through these stages is going to be a really vibrant, exciting, effective group. They will be able to accomplish a lot. But it takes, um, it takes a willingness to go through these things, and not just one time. But over and over again, every time the group gets together, there's a certain sense of forming, of, you know, reconnecting, like, hey, how's it been going? You know, you do a little chit-chat to establish connection, you know, to talk about the struggles that you've had since the last meeting, to reaffirm the boundaries. I go to 12-step meetings, and every meeting, they they go through the guidelines. Um, We do it in our groups here on Tuesday nights um, to, you know, create some uh, norming for the group. And then when, all, when those things are in place, the transformation that it can occur when people engage in a very real and safe environment is just phenomenal. Um, on Tuesday nights, we have restoration in this room. I just watch the people that come week after week and just see the transformation, and it's, it's the greatest thing. So thanks for asking about that. It does apply to groups. Any, anybody else? Yes. Um, who, who has, oh, Debbie, would you? Or Nick, either. Whoever can get there. Um, 
how about if you have a spouse or a child who is resistant to therapy or counseling and, a, and another spouse or parent is forcing them to go, so they arrive with great resistance and don't want to change or, or are in complete denial? Great question. Well, um, when I first went into practice, I was the uh, unit chief of an adolescent unit. And very often, adolescents were brought either to my office or to the hospital against their wishes. And um, ironically, when it comes to connection, one of the things that, that you try to do is to mirror the emotional state of the person you're meeting with. And so it's kind of interesting with a, like, let's say it was a teenage boy whose mom had drug him to therapy. And he's sitting there, you know, kind of slouched back with his arms folded like, you know, I am not going to say a word to you. Um, and generally what I would do is just, I would ask the mom to come in at the, just at the beginning and say, um, is there anything that you, that you necessarily need to tell me? Sometimes though with a boy, I would just, I would just ask the mom to wait in the waiting room, bring the kid in my office and sit there and go like, so why are you here today? And he'd be like, I don't know. Like, oh really? You just came with your mommy because she told you to? No. Like, so, well, okay, well, why are you here? Yeah, you should ask her. Why do I need to ask her? So what I, what I would try to do with someone who's resistant is to match their resistance. To be able, because I can tell you, if you try to be really nice with somebody who doesn't want to be there, they're going to just stonewall you and, like, think you're, you know, just a goofball, like, you know, and they won't trust you. But if you, if you match their resistance and go, like, okay, so really, you have no idea why your mom brought you here. You know, well, she's, she, thinks I, she thinks I should do better in school or she thinks I smoke weed too much or whatever. Like, oh, okay, well, that helps. <laughs> and, you know, but the cool thing is that once you, re, once you let them know that, look, I'm not, I'm not here to control you, I'm not here to manipulate you or, you know, kill you with kindness, I'm here to figure out what's going on. And, you know, and, and basically, what I, you know, what I would communicate to the guys, look, I know you don't want to be here. And frankly, if you don't want to be here, I'm not sure I do either. But here we are. And, you know, I could actually be your ally so you don't have to keep coming back if we can figure out what's, you know, what's going on and make some, you know, some adjustment so that your mom doesn't drag you here every week. Um, and so there, there are times when, if it's a spouse, for instance, um, if, if I'm meeting with a man and um, I say, well, maybe you should invite your wife, and he's like, oh, she'll never come. Or I say to a woman, you know, well, you know, would, you, would your husband be willing to come in and meet with us? And she's like, that'll never happen. Um, what I generally do is, is encourage them to imagine the person that is resistant getting beyond that resistance. Um, because what I tell people is if you cannot imagine something, you cannot pray for it. You ever think about that? If you can't imagine something happen, how can you really pray for it? And so, so I, I, God, is a, is a God is an imaginative God. The Bible says he calls things that are, that are not as though they were. And so he's given us active imaginations too. And so um, if you're praying for someone, let's say it's a resistant spouse or a child, you want to begin to imagine them taking a different tack, taking a different approach, and being willing to come. And so, for instance, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've had someone come in and say, oh, my partner won't even go to church with me. And I'll be like, oh, really? You know, that's sad. How long have you been married? Oh, 10 years. Like, well, when was the last time you asked him to go? I don't know, three years ago. Like, really? And so, yeah, well, you know, he's very clear. He is not going to darken the door of a church. And I'm like, well, that may be true, but why not ask? Why not put it out there? And she's like, oh, I, I know what he's going to say. I'm like, okay, so what, you know, so you say, hey, honey, I'm going to go to church on Sunday. You want to go? Like, why are you asking me that? You know I hate that place. Like, yeah, I just thought you might change your mind. It'd be, it'd be really nice for me if you went with me. Um, but no pressure. And what, what I found out is that <laughs> what, what people tend to do when they get resistance, they do one of two things. They either push harder or they back off. Like, oh, sorry, I even asked. They, they, they take away the ask if they don't get a good response or they push harder. Like, 
you, you never do what I want. I always do what you want to do, and you never go to church with me. You, you know, try to push through the resistance. But, um, and we'll, when we talk a little bit more about the parable of the lost things um, later on in the, in the training, we realize that when someone is resistant, the last thing you want to do is to try to overcome resistance with more pushing. And you also don't want to withdraw from it. You want to be able to go, you know, I'd still like for you to go. Um, the invitation's still out there. And time after time, I've seen people um, actually win the, uh, win the battle by just persistent, loving, open, no-strings-attached invitation. Okay, cool. Well, let's, it's 10 o'clock, so why don't we take a break? And, um, we'll, and when we come back, um, Ruth Stitt, who is uh, the one who, who did some music for us last time, Ruth is an LPCS. She's a licensed professional um, counselor and supervisor of LPCs. Um, she also is heading up the counseling ministry over at Woods Edge. Is that right? How many of you are here from Woods Edge? A few of you, I know. Yay, raise them high. Wow, cool. Awesome. We're glad you're here. Um, so Ruth will be coming up to talk about grief. And um, as we look at it, we'll, uh, we'll also make some applications to the model. Um, Anything else that's burning question before we pause? Let's pray, and then let's take a 10-minute break. Um, please do try to make it 10 minutes and be back in your seats so that we can, we can move forward. Lord, we're so glad for grace. We're so glad that you meet us in our shame, that you cover us, that the blood of Jesus is a, is a perfect covering, that with his blood we are white as snow. Lord, thank you that um, we don't have to avoid our inadequacy anymore. We can take ourselves lightly because you have taken us so seriously. We thank you that we don't have to cover up or pretend to be adequate because only you are adequate. Scripture says, let every man be proven false and you be proven true. And so we are happy to be seen in our inadequacy we are happy to not have the answers because you are all for us. Lord, we thank you that you invite us into this great work of reconciliation. And we thank you that it is not to us that the glory goes, that it's all to you. Keep us in that constant awareness of our utter dependence on you. Keep us always willing to confront the pain in our lives and confess the sin. Lord, make us yielded and meek. Make us always willing to correct our course without self-recrimination or much ado. And help us, Lord, to be full of your spirit that the love of Christ would control us, that we be convicted of your will and your way, and that we step forward into the future with courage, knowing that when we fall, you will be there to lift us up. Lord, you are good, you are faithful, you are holy, and we, we adore you. We thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen. It is four after, so 14 after, be ready to go.